I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of Trade Guys, we'll talk about the transatlantic trade relationship in light of European officials' visit to China, Indonesia's plan to propose a critical minerals deal with the U.S., and the state of globalization. All that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Hello there, Trade Guys listeners. This is Bill Ryan's Trade Guy, and I'm starting because once again this week we have a a plug, and I just want to alert people to this. It's not free, but I have to, I want to lay it out. The CBP, the Customs Border Patrol, and the Department of Homeland Security is having a conference on customs facilitation. It's in Boston. It's next week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, It appears that uh, in-person Attendance is already maxed out, so this would be an online attendance issue only. But it's going to feature the uh, CBP commissioner, the deputy secretary of Homeland Security, the assistant secretary for export enforcement for BIS, Matt Axelrod, and a bunch of other people. They're going to be talking about customs modernization. Uh, They're going to be talking about our favorite acronym, UFLPA, and how you enforce UFLPA, IPR enforcement, cybersecurity, supply chain resiliency. A whole bunch of things that uh, we've been talking about throughout these podcasts, which might be of interest to you. As I said, it's not free, uh, but if you're interested, I would go to uh, cbp.gov trade, and I think you should be able to find it there under stakeholder engagement. Uh, and if you're interested, sign up to attend virtually. And with that, over to acting trade guy Thibault, who is going to be our master of ceremonies today. Great. I really like that title, Acting Trade Guy. So, hi, Trade Guys. Great to see you both again. I'm excited to be on this week. We have a lot of great topics to cover, starting with another trade and geopolitics topic, this time geared towards the transatlantic relationship and how the U.S. and Europe are approaching their own trade relations with China. Almost 10 days ago now, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and French President Emmanuel Macron headed to Beijing together to discuss Ukraine and trade, among other topics. And of course, it became apparent that Europe isn't entirely aligned with U.S. foreign policy, seen in Macron's words on Taiwan. So, trade guys, I wanted to ask about this. Is there a similar dissonance on trade policy? And how are the U.S. and EU similar or different towards China in that regard? This reminds me a little of when I was working on the Hill for Senator Hines. He would periodically issue a press release attacking the then European community for something. (laughs) And for about two weeks, there'd be total radio silence. And then somebody from the British embassy would come in to see me. It was always the British who were at that point part of the European community. I think that they were the designated American handlers uh, because they knew how to talk to the colonials, which was slowly and and monosyllables to make sure we understood. And he would explain at great length about why they were right and we were wrong. And then I would take my 10 minutes to explain why we were right and they were wrong. And at the end, he would look at me and say, well, you know, it wasn't us. It was the French. And in many respects, uh, no no offense, Thibault, who is uh, also French, but it was, 
I think has characterized the relationship uh, since probably before de Gaulle. They have their own view about how things should be done, and they have their own view about what the proper role of Europe is in the world economy, and they have their own view about what the role of France is or should be within the European Union. So part of me says, to the extent we have a division of opinion, and it appears we do, it might be more between the United States and France than it is between the United States and the EU. Commission President von der Leyen, in her public remarks before she went to China, and it appears when she was in China, took a position that is uh, much closer to the United States, particularly on Ukraine, and has taken the position, uh, I think, of much greater skepticism toward China on economic grounds than Macron has taken. So if nothing else, it appears there's some difference of opinion within Europe about how to proceed. I wouldn't say this is 180 degrees apart. I would say it's maybe, you know, 30, 40, 50 degrees apart. Maybe if you're a pessimist, 90. But, you know, they probably need to have more conversation. And I noticed when Macron was talking, a favorite phrase of, of ours returned to European vocabulary, and that was strategic autonomy, which was much in vogue during the Trump administration, actually, when he was busy trashing the EU, and the Europeans started talking about the need for strategic autonomy. The problem with the term was that every European I talked to defined it differently, and it was clear that there wasn't a, a single view about what it meant or what it was supposed to accomplish which may be why it kind of faded out. It appears now maybe it's fading back in. It appears that I think Macron's view of strategic autonomy means that he envisions the EU as kind of a third force globally, somewhere between uh, China and the United States. I think the United States view is that it would be more effective if we were aligned, uh, as we are on Ukraine, but we hope we can uh, achieve a greater alignment on, on China. Uh, fortunately, right now, there's no war with China. They haven't attacked anybody. They haven't invaded uh, Taiwan. We haven't attacked them. So uh, we don't have the, the crisis uh, we had when Russia invaded Ukraine. But it sort of has raised the question of if we do have that crisis, where is Europe? And shouldn't Europe be thinking now about the same things that American companies have been thinking about, which is reassessing the risk of doing business with China? and thinking about, as, as uh, Wunderlein put it, in what I think is a better term, de-risking rather than decoupling. And I think she's onto something. That is a better term because it tells companies you really need to think about the risk. And if you're Lithuanian, you've experienced the risk firsthand because China is, has a now common practice of weaponizing its trade policy to achieve other objectives and to show its displeasure with political stands that other countries have taken. Ask the Lithuanians, ask the Australians, ask the Koreans, ask the Norwegians. Uh, the word, the list is getting longer. Uh, and I think companies here have noticed that. They've noticed Chinese employees of American uh, due diligence companies in China being arrested or uh, detained is probably a better word, being detained two weeks ago. There's a Japanese representative of a Japanese company was detained. It didn't escape CEO notice here that several years ago, Rio Tinto uh, executives were arrested and put in jail over a dispute on iron ore prices. You know, if you're a Western company, you notice these things and you wonder, that could be me. 
And I think what we're waiting for is more signs that Europe has figured this out to the same extent that the United States uh, private sector has figured it out. And it sounds that uh, von der Leyen has figured it out faster than Macron. And there needs to be additional discussion, I think, within Europe about how they want to position themselves. Scott, sorry to ramble on so long. Oh, no, I, I think that's exactly the, the right uh, point to make in terms of the United States, at least U.S. headquartered multinationals and European headquartered multinationals both face the same risk environment with regard to whether they're sourcing from China or competing in China. And I, I think there's, a, there's much common ground that ought to be explored there because while both uh, the United States and Europe are maybe a little smaller in terms of population, a little smaller in terms of GDP than, say, 10 years ago, there's still the big import markets for a big export destination for, for products from across Asia, including China. And that is, that's an important factor. And I do agree with Bill. I think the idea of managing risk is what really gets companies' attention. Supply chains take decades to be built. I was thinking about this in the context of China. The opening of China really began roughly late 1980s. Uh, and so many Chinese investments, many supplier relationships are probably 35 years old at this point or have been in existence for that long. And, and changing those has its own set of risks and, and, and difficulties associated with it, particularly if, if China is a source of production or assembly at scale or a key raw material at scale. The China scale is something that's very hard to replicate. But the, these long-term, you know, this is a long project for anybody involved in that market over the since the opening, and it will be just as long or perhaps as complicated to unwind it. So I do think that's important. I also think we're, we're the the press is is focused on the wrong things in terms of the reporting about sort of subsidies and particularly vehicle and battery subsidies, whether the United States and whether European makers will participate and. Uh, same with whether Europe does a similar kinds of things. I think the fundamental issue is industrial competitiveness in an era of rising energy costs. Keep in mind that the, that the European industrial heartland was powered by cheap Russian gas, and it was a key element to their global competitiveness. That cheap Russian gas is shut off at the moment, and I don't know when it's coming back, maybe never. Never is a long time, but uh, in, the, in the middle term, there's a major competitiveness problem that Europe has to account for. I don't see the actions that are associated with that. And for me, that's the much bigger story that almost no one is figure, is reporting on. And it's not a classic trade dispute, but it is driving decision-making at headquarters. That makes sense. And aside from the de-risking for the companies, do you think there's also greater geostrategic alignment with the United States when it comes to uh, limiting Chinese access to sensitive technologies, for example, or reducing reliance on critical minerals coming from Europe? I think we're getting there. I think the fact that the United States was, enable, was able to reach an agreement, not only with Japan, but with the Netherlands on export controls in the semiconductor sector was a sign of that. I think what we're seeing, though, in, uh, is variability uh, across Europe. Some countries are uh, much more uh, concerned about uh, China than others. And uh, the companies in those countries are taking steps ahead of, of the others. I mean, I think we get there, but it's a process. It's not a, it's not a single event, and it takes um, 
a lot of dialogue, a lot of discussion, which is probably what the TTC is for. But I suspect since this, uh, the question you asked particularly, spills over into national security and not just economics, this is going to mean uh, require a lot of discussion with member state governments directly because the defense national security is a member state issue. It's not a commission issue. And the Belgians, the French, the Swedes, the Danes are going to have to decide for themselves how they want to position themselves on, on security related issues. So I think the United States has its work cut out for us because it doesn't mean three trips to Brussels. Uh, it means a lot of conversations in, in other capitals to try to get people aligned. As I said, you know, some of them are much more attuned to this than, than others it has to do with their history. It has to do with the state of their current economic relationship with China. It has to do with with uh, where their companies are and uh, the extent to which their economies are invested in and dependent upon China. And so it's a it's a mosaic. It's not a. Uh, well, I also think there's a difference between the leading edge technology issues, which, as Bill points out, are national security issues and are likely to be areas of cooperation. I think that's a whole different matter than the materials. Minerals, if you really want to achieve the goals that European and American political leaders are announcing for changes, particularly to vehicles, somebody's got to open a lot of mines for a lot of minerals. Uh, and it's probably not going to be the United States and Europe, uh, but, uh, but elsewhere. And right at the moment, uh, particularly things like rare earths, those mines are in China. Those processing facilities are in China. So it's, for me, that's a different challenge and a different matter entirely than the national security cooperation on export controls, which I, I do think is, is very important, but achievable at the member state level. All right, this is a good segue into our next topic, which speaking of cultivating friends and choosing which friendships to cultivate, really, there's been a recent development in an ongoing U.S. trade story. Three days ago, Indonesia's coordinating minister of maritime affairs and investments said that the country plans to propose a trade arrangement with the U.S. that allow businesses from Indonesia to benefit from U.S. electric vehicle tax credits. Uh, trade guys, is this deal similar to the one that the U.S. signed with Japan last month? Well, it's hard to say, mostly because uh, Indonesia doesn't have a battery industry. What they do is have mining operations for nickel. And uh, nickel is uh, reasonably plentiful in certain parts of Indonesia. And so they're a leading producer of that. But it's hard for me to understand how exactly that connects with what the United States wants to do in terms of the batteries and vehicles, uh, mostly because there are already very low tariffs on, on minerals. I think the average mineral tariffs is well under 2% in the United States. So we import minerals all the time. We import a lot of minerals. If you go to the U.S. Geological Survey, they, they actually can, can tell you very clearly what we import and why. And so it's not an unusual practice. And there's really nothing in any recently passed legislation that affects sort of the, the, that, that issue of importing minerals or processed metals in the case of nickel. The idea of, I don't, I just, it doesn't seem to me that Indonesia would come to mind as a top battery producer or battery elements or components for further processing in the United States other than the, the metal itself. Now, there's also the, the, the long history of hedging that, go, that is a, a common practice among a lot of countries in Southeast Asia. Indonesia would be included in that, mostly because while they uh, respect and 
want to be friends with the United States, their key trading relations are, are much closer. They're China, India, and elsewhere. And so they, will, they, they are unlikely to be a future ally of any sort, very different than a treaty ally like Japan. So I, I think we've got a lot to, to clear up. And our Treasury Secretary, who coined the term friends sharing, has, I think, got that out of her academic career. She's a, was a long, long time academic, and she's never really bothered to define what exactly a friend is and how we make them and who they are. When she coined what was, what was I think, a clever phrase, but it's not, been, it's not been expressed in any practical way. So I don't know. I think we'll continue to source nickel from Indonesia, but whether or not that comports with what we're subsidizing and how is a mystery to me and whether Indonesia even qualifies for those things. We've got a lot to learn. You have to figure out who your friends are. And we've, there's been a lot of talk about friend shoring and sort of an easy conversation to have because it makes sense on the surface. But then it asks the, uh, the key question is, you know, who's a friend, who isn't? Some years ago at CSIS, uh, there was a conference on uh, inbound investment reviews, CFIUS and inbound investment reviews. And one of the issues uh, being discussed at the conference was whether it was a good idea to create what was called a white list. That would be a list of, of quote unquote, good countries where we really wouldn't, we would not uh, review investments from them because they were deemed to be okay. And we would save uh, the review process and CFIUS resources for the, the countries that were not on the white list. Well, at, at that point, somebody in the audience asked the obvious question, if you're going to do that, who would be on the white list? You know, so who are the good guys? And there was this panel and it was a very long pause because nobody wanted to answer the question. And finally, one of the panelists who should remain anonymous, he was a former uh, Pentagon official in the uh, George W. Bush administration, said, well, you know, there's the UK and there's Australia. And then he stopped. And I was sitting next to uh, uh, somebody I knew from the Canadian embassy and looked at him and said, what about you? And he looked a little bit concerned because Canada was not on this guy's list and neither was anybody in Europe except for the UK. So friend is sort of in the eye of the beholder. And if you have strict criteria, it might be a very short list. Is Indonesia in the friend category? I think, you know, I don't know that anybody in the United States would ever put them in the enemy category, but there's a range, big range between close friend and bitter enemy. And if you're going to play this game, you have to make difficult decisions like that. And of course, the decision you make will have major implications for your larger relationship uh, with that country. If you decide that Indonesia is not a friend or not a good enough friend for friend shoring, in this case, not a good enough friend to have a critical minerals agreement with, you're sending signals to that government that will have repercussions above and beyond simply whether we're going to have a minerals agreement with them. It's in the eye of the beholder, and that depends on multiple factors, including whether they're from the uh, current executive branch or the legislative branch. Members of Congress didn't necessarily react well to the deal that we made with Japan, even if I think a lot of foreign policy professionals in the U.S. would treat Japan as a friend. Yeah, but I think that was an argument over authority uh, right. uh, rather than over the merits. I think the congressional argument was that 
A, they should have been consulted, and B, this is an agreement that they should be able to approve. This is on my mind because our old friend Alan Wolf and I have been having a, an email argument for the last two days over whether Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution or Article 2, Section 1 prevails, each of which provides authority in, in Article 1 uh, for, to the Congress to regulate interstate and foreign commerce and Article 2 for the president to conduct foreign relations. And these things fall into that area of where you could argue either way. And Alan and I have been going back and forth on this. I think the congressional view is predictable, which is Article 1, Section 8 prevails, and we should review these things. I haven't seen anybody particularly objecting to a minerals agreement with Japan. I think there are some people who will say that, fine, do that, but that doesn't qual- that should not qualify as a trade agreement within the meaning of the Inflation Reduction Act. But that's not an argument against the agreement. It's, an aggr- it's against extending the tax benefits. And the other objection has been, well, we should get the vote on it. And I'm sure if we do one with Indonesia, exactly the same issues will come up. No doubt. All right. Let us close out with a big picture question that's been shaking the trade world for some time now. And I was hoping to tackle it with the two of you. And that would be the state of globalization, where it's going, at the center of which is obviously the strategic competition between the U.S. and China. Some are saying that the current trade policies in the U.S. and elsewhere amount to deglobalization. Uh, Bill, as you said, the use catchphrase for it seems to be de-risking. Others yet arguing that globalization isn't dead, rather that it's regrouping to confront greater geopolitical threats. So trade guys, what do you think? Are we regrouping, deglobalizing? Is it the same thing? Well, looked at in, the, in sort of a wide angle lens, there are some things that almost never change about globalization and some things that change a lot. And you've got to pay attention to the things that change. Here's what doesn't change. What doesn't change is technology. Once something is invented, if there's a useful application for that tool, that invention, we never forget how to use it. I'm reminded because I grew up in a part of Ohio where there's a lot of of, uh, Amish that live. There's a hardware store that caters to the Amish community. Kime Lumber is one of them, but there there are several uh, branches of of this store and, and they carry tools and equipment that doesn't require separate power. In other words, if you want a, if you want a hand-driven Apple cider press, you can still buy one at Lehman Hardware or Time Lumber, one of these outlets that caters to that community. And these, these products were probably invented, you know, in, in not, a, not the Bronze Age, but maybe, maybe you know, in the 1800s. The, they were invented, first designed, first brought to market. They're still available. You can still buy those things. That's true of anything, everything we've learned to reduce or make more efficient or more visible in the in the movement of goods, people, ideas, and cultures, which is really what globalization is about. So the technology doesn't change. We're not going to forget how to how to use information technology to track container ships. We're not going to forget about the container ship. In fact, we're making them bigger and more efficient. So that's the part that is that is that we we don't need to worry about it going away just because there's incentives for using it. The parts that constantly change are demographics geopolitics and the domestic politics that flow from geopolitics. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, demographics uh, will change the effect of globalization. The United States workforce and employment peaked in 1997. The economy was really humming in 1997. Uh, very f- full employment. People were really happy with, with things. 
where our workforce has shrunk since then. China is now at, at a point of China's opening, which we mentioned earlier in the program was roughly the late 80s. They had a period of time of massive growth in their workforce, and now it's, it's, it's beginning to decline for a number of reasons. So those kinds of demographic changes will affect. So countries that were once producers are now consumers because the middle class has grown. That's a demographic phenomenon. Geopolitics change because, for instance, we're running out of, of, of room as, as, the, as the sole superpower, which started when the Berlin Wall fell. And I don't know when it ended or if, if it's ended, but the, this multipolarity is, uh, it seems to be taking the place of the United States as the sole hegemon or superpower, is the, uh, however you want to put that. And the domestic politics have changed commensurately. So did globalization end? No. Well, it, it slowed down after, after 2007. Peak trade was in 2007. 2008, the global financial crisis slowed down the rate of growth. The politics began to change. The politics changed dramatically. In 2016, three things happened. One, we, we walked away from TPP. Trump was elected as president here on, a, on an explicitly protectionist campaign. And Brexit happened. All three were, were domestic political events reflecting a change in that geopolitical dynamic. So those things always change, and they're changing now. I'm not sure we understand it or appreciate it, but Bill will have uh, more thoughts. First, uh, I, I'm in the regroup camp, but I just an historical note, when I teach this stuff, I, one of my comments has been, there, I think there are probably two points in history when globalization actually did reverse. One was after the fall of the Roman Empire, when literature and literacy actually disappeared uh, for a long time, not universally, but in many parts of the world. There's a book that I'm sure uh, Joe Biden knows about and loves called How the Irish Saved Civilization, which is really about how the Irish monks copied manuscripts and copied Roman and Greek manuscripts and thereby saved the body of knowledge that had been accumulated by the Greeks and the Romans for posterity. But it took a long time to get back from that. They don't call the period from 500 AD to 1000 the Dark Ages for nothing. I mean, they weren't exactly dark, but they were different from before and different than from after. Uh, the other point was in 1913, World War I and the Depression, where the level of trade that the world had in 1913 was not surpassed until 1970. It's 1970. So in between, you've got two world wars and a depression. I wouldn't say people forgot stuff. We still had steamships. We still had all the technology that Scott talked about. But the tools were put in the tool shed for a while and were not widely used. And we destroyed all the industrial production except for the United States. Yes. In, in the Second World War. Yes. All destroyed. And I, I don't think we face that now. I don't think we're going backwards because Scott's right. You don't uninvent the internet. You don't uninvent containerization. You don't un uninvent digitization. But we are in a period of regrouping and, and governments are regrouping and companies are regrouping. Companies are figuring out how to de-risk. They're building resilience into their supply chains, which means sometimes taking steps that are not economic but uh, and are more expensive and and perhaps more labor intensive, but they eliminate choke points and they eliminate dependencies. And if you're a company, 
you know, when you think about choke points and dependencies, you're not just thinking about political weaponization of trade. You're thinking about earthquakes. You're thinking about floods. You're thinking about climate change damage that suddenly is going to mean your factory might be rendered inoperative for months because the power is out, the power lines are out, uh, the roads have been uh, disrupted by earthquakes uh, or floods. So you need to plan for contingencies, and you're seeing a lot of that right now. Governments are also in the business of de-risking, but for them, them they're looking, they're looking at it from a security standpoint. How do we preserve our military strength? How do we preserve our national security? And how do we do it in a way that doesn't undermine our economy? But that may necessitate taking some steps that do have short-term consequences. So it's a time of turmoil, but I don't think it's a time of deglobalization. It's a time of rearrangement. And there's opportunity in that. I, I think Bill's making a good point about how things get rearranged because uh, we mentioned earlier in the show about uh, China's uh, scale advantages. Those are very hard to replicate, but there are places that get close. Okay, I think Vietnam is a is a country that is they they can't do the the whole scale that China does, obviously, but their their competence is is increasing very rapidly, and they I think they're proving to be an excellent place for sourcing intermediate goods. Likewise, I think you can picture a much more advanced Mexico or Turkey or one of the one of the countries with an affiliation association agreement, excuse me, with Europe. Mexico is the obvious one in the United States. If you if you get Mexico with their get their act together on power and some fundamentals about running an efficient manufacturing system like they have in Mexico City and and in the south, Mexico becomes a much more important part of the uh, onshoring into North America. So there are, there are ways you can see a way forward. None of this is quick or easy. It's, uh, it's easy for the academics to talk about. It's very difficult and costly for businesses and, and governments to make those changes. So I think we'll see it play out over time, which I think is, I think is exa almost exactly what Bill's saying. And the challenge is you have to think about it a different way. And I think that's hard for, it's hard for governments. It's also hard for companies. It's particularly hard for smaller ones yeah. uh, to think about how you would do business in different ways and to kind of think outside the box. When I was uh, on the Hill, one of the things we did was work with a, a wonderful but unappreciated and small program in the Commerce Department called Trade Adjustments Assistance for Firms. And what it did was work with uh, small companies that had gotten into trouble, basically, and were being uh, wiped out by imports and trying to figure out a way to stay afloat. And it was not a program that gave the companies money. What it was was a program that brought in an expert and give the companies advice. And one of the things they, they told, the, 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 the experts told me over and over again, was they would go into these smaller companies that were often family-owned. And it was usually, uh, by this time, it was usually the grandson, third generation, that was running the company. And he was running it the same way his father did and the same way his grandfather did, and really couldn't see outside the path that they've been going down for 70 or 80 years. And what it took oftentimes was somebody coming in and say, you know, there's, a, there's another supplier that is 30% cheaper than the one you're using, or there is a product like the one you're making that you're not making, but which where demand has risen enormously. 
why don't you make that, you know, instead of what you're making? Why don't you change if you're in the apparel business or something else? There's different color combinations. You know, have you done any work to figure out what people actually want to buy? Or are you simply making the same thing that you made for the last 10 years? And it, it was interesting because it was kind of a revelation sometimes to these small companies to bring in somebody entirely from the outside who approached the business from a completely different perspective and got them to make not a U-turn, but a, you know, a left turn or a right turn toward a kind of a different model. And companies are now discovering they need to do that. They need to do that really for themselves. And it's a challenge. Uh, and we're going to be in a period of turmoil, I think, as, as executives work through that. Well, trade guys, I wish we could talk about this topic for longer. Talking about the state of globalization for 15 minutes isn't doing it justice, but I have a sense that we can approach it again on another episode. Well, we don't think it's going away, so they'll definitely come up as a future topic. <laughs> great. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for another great episode. It was great to join again and looking forward to touching base next episode. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.